So today I am with Joanna, who is the founder of Dye Fashion Wear. Uh, so Dye is clothes for the professional woman, with its smart and technical fabrics. It's also elegant tailoring, but also with a minimal design. The pieces are very high-end, yet proof fabrics for women in business. The Dye collection features powerful, sensitive fabrics for all dresses and suiting while also having a collection of soft blouses which feature the skin smooth technical jersey and silk. So, hi, how are you today? Uh, I'm good, thank you for having me on your show. No problem, thank you for joining us. So do you just want to introduce yourself and tell us what your role is at Dye? Absolutely, so um, I found myself here after eight years of uh, an investment banking career in New York and London. Um, I think the idea came to me on one of those same day work trips where I got dressed at 4.30 a.m., caught the first flight out, and after a day of meetings at 8 p.m., I was still sitting on the plane back to London. And in that moment, I thought, first of all, how uncomfortable I felt in my clothes. The waistband was tied. I could barely lift my arms and my blazer. And um, I asked myself, why can't this feel like yoga? but still look like a tailored <laughs> yeah. suit. Um, and so that was the seed that I guess I planted in my own head. And um, sort of fast forward a few months, um, the, the idea never went away. Um, I ended up uh, leaving banking, taking a few months to really figure out what my next move was. Um, enrolling in London College of Fashion for two courses in design and pattern cutting pattern cutting is the basic element of tailoring and creating shape and fit and darts. Um, and then from there, I interned for three months with Amelia Wickstead, a luxury women's wear designer um, in London, and sort of gave myself a crash course in fashion and then went for it. Wow, that's crazy. So how long was that time period between you having those thoughts like on the plane and actually handing in your notice? <laughs> um, that was about uh, half a year. Wow. Um, and then so that a little bit, mm, seven months led me into from a January meeting to the fall where I went on to London College of Fashion, mm -hmm. um, the internship, uh, and then doing working for her fashion show the, the following February, and then launching, or I should say doing my all my research work ahead of time, and then from there four months until launch yeah. with the website. So had you always had an interest in fashion? What did you study at university? I'm assuming oh. you something finance <laughs> um, I did not study fashion at all. Um, I majored in electrical and computer engineering at oh, wow. Cornell University, so very different. At Cornell? Yes, oh, yeah. Good from, from there as well. Cool. Um, and then I went from there to finance, to banking, Wall yeah. Street in New York, and I think a lot of, at least from sort of an Ivy League or the East Coast schools, a lot of people end up in Manhattan and mm -hmm. doing something related to finance or yeah. um, similar. So I found myself in that boat. And um, five years after uh, New York, I moved to London and uh, did three years of banking here. Um, but going back to your question about um, did I ever, was I ever interested in fashion? I think I always had a good eye for design aesthetics if my mom will tell you that I drew all these amazing drawings and paintings when mm. I was growing up. So I could draw. I was like that yeah. well. That's like my only true talent, being able to draw. Yeah, that's, <laughs> you should definitely stay in touch with that because yeah. I think I find it, very therapeutic. It, it is, definitely. So during the few months I had off, I was got back into watercolors yeah. and painting, mm. um, had my first sort of anonymous Instagram account. Um, of just watercolors yeah. during my travels, yeah. yeah, and then that um, that showed I could do an Instagram account and find people. So um, from there, I transitioned that into the design course, which mm. was drawing a portfolio of work clothes. Yeah, it's interesting because I think a lot of people kind of put so much stress into like, what do I want to do? Like, I want to find something that I love. Like, I don't know what I want to do. Yeah, and if you just explore and do. Like your hobbies and interests and, and yeah. that will gradually kind of develop into your Ex passion exactly. and finding what, what you can 
actually make monetize and make a business out of it. Yeah, I think we lose sight of that once mm. we maybe go down from call from uni yeah, to the route sure. that we think we're supposed to go as a career um, path or professional. Mm. Um, and I think it's important to still keep in touch with all of those. Um, other interests that you have because yeah. those are talents like your interests are yeah. your natural sort of inclinations exactly. of what you love to do yeah that's so true so you've had eight years of experience working in a finance career in New York um, and you said the idea came about when you were just traveling and you needed comfortable wear whilst you were <coughs> kind of going into meetings at 8 a.m. and not getting yeah. home until like 11 p.m. yeah but what gave you the confidence to kind of jump out of your career? So just to confirm, you're of J.P. Morgan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what gave you the confidence to kind of like jump out? I know you said you had the um, the internship lined up, mm-hmm. but you know how yeah. did you know when it all You don't know, and I think I think one I had been desiring to do something entrepreneurial and a consumer relatable product for some time leading up to the point of jumping out. So from a personal career standpoint, once I changed my mindset about I, I can see myself doing something else, not pursuing this corporate banking career, um, I was open to looking for ideas. And that sort of was also in line with when I got the idea, I was in a position in my mind where I was ready to jump out. Mm-hmm. So if that makes sense, yeah. I wanted to pursue something entrepreneurial. To get out of the comfort zone, I think any entrepreneur must probably be so passionate about what it is they want to start, what their vision is, um, and also a little naive to um, want true. to do yeah. that because the grass always looks greener on the other side. Um, I can tell you from the other side that it's very difficult, um, but I think if I were so pessimistic and um, doubtful at the time, then I would have never made the leap. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming you don't regret it at all? No. like it's the best? I, this occurred to me last week. Um, if someone asked me a, at that point in time before I jumped out, in two years time this is what you would have built this is the reach that you would have um, had and what you would have achieved would you do it or stay in your job i would a thousand times over definitely leave and do this so i think that says something to me that i've put myself in a position that Mm. is fulfilling and and satisfying and that's what it is it's the fulfillment and that kind of massively outweighs the long hours yeah that you're doing yeah so yeah yeah Good question. <laughs> what kind of skills do you think you've learned in banking and how have you applied that to starting up your own business? Yeah, um, I think the eight years of banking and the training that I had through those eight years was absolutely instrumental to um, coming out into this world and embarking on this journey. The skills specifically are one negotiation. Um, and doing it in the way that is appropriate for every single audience because when you're out here everything is a new relationship whether it's with your suppliers and convincing them that they should invest in you when you only want to make 20 units in the very first collection of a style which is nothing um, or yeah or having convincing people to want to work for you like the freelancers that I have then convincing the press and building relationships there and the customers. It's all a sort of negotiation process, but understanding the fine balance of, of negotiation mm, and relationship definitely. building. Um, Just att- managing those stakeholders as well. Exactly. Um, attention to detail is beyond, like, I think it's a- applicable for no matter what. In- attention to detail, which is applicable for, I think, anyone, no matter what industry they're in. But um, here, you can't afford to make even, you know, I make mistakes, but having a shipping mistake go out to Australia, that one recently cost me, you know, 150 pounds. And there's little minute things like that, that the less that you can make of them, even in something that you don't know, um, you know how to go about double, triple checking yourself before mm, yeah. going forward with something. Um, there's so many skills. Uh, I think I've been really good about budgeting and mm. just having 
I've developed the sense of, <clears throat> I've developed the general sense of conservatism when it comes to managing finances and being conservative when it comes to thinking about forecasting, maybe almost to a fault, because when I launched, I thought even if I could sell one a week, going to two a week, and clearly I've managed to outperform that massively. But I think those were, those, that was my mindset and what I sort of budgeted for myself. So when you outperform those expectations, it feels like a much more successful outcome. And also it's like you have to be not so much pessimistic, but you've got a plan for the worst case scenario. Yeah, exactly. You have to scenario plan. Mm, for sure. So what was your first move in starting the business? Oh. After you did your internship. Yeah. Um, I, uh, through Amelia, I was able to meet some people within fashion. Um, and through the course of that, there was one um, woman who's a freelance pattern cutter, uh, freelance pattern cutter, production manager, development, garment technology, like it well, all exists in this one woman. Yeah. So the fit and the production aspect of the process, which was a big gap that for me and my skill set, um, I brought her on from day one and we've been working right. together ever since. Mm -hmm. She's been critical to everything that you see. Um, I do the sketches and she makes, basically, we make the rest happen, but yeah. mostly through her. And also she had um, a lot of manufacturing relationships in Europe oh, through her right. 30 years of experience here. Um, so that was the first step to get our first collection. We had to make a set of samples. Um, the first collection was only eight pieces. And, um, and how many pieces do you have now? Now we have 18 pieces. And from eight pieces, we had two colorways each, so 16 items to over 40 items now um, so it's good yeah but I started with her then we made a, I made a website also on a budget doing my own designs and then when we launched we didn't launch with inventory we launched with pre-orders so I went to my network um, did a trunk show in New York a trunk show in London had my friends and my friends and I thought the real test was if people would buy or not, place a pre-order or not. If they didn't place a pre-order, I didn't have a product based on the samples that I had at these um, trunk shows. Uh, it turned out that beyond the friends who you know, felt they had to place the obligatory one order, I had friends place up to five um, items that they liked wow. out of eight. So that spoke to me a lot that I had something here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I guess you didn't want to kind of invest in all the stock and have that line there just in case there wasn't the, the demand for it, right? Exactly. So that was one of the benefits and two was having some data on the sizing, the colorways yeah. before it went into production. And the third benefit is it's a cash intensive business, but having this cash flow come in mm. to fund a part of the production up front mm. was really important. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Seems like you've nailed it. <laughs> so just on the... Um, just looking at Zara's kind of business model. Mm -hmm. So their turnaround rates are something like two weeks or yeah, very, very fast. Very fast. So like to me, I, I feel like there's, there would be a lot of wastage, um, especially within the fashion industry and not just to pinpoint Zara, but across a number of high street brands. Yeah. How would you say um, the dye brand ensures sustainability and like less wastage, which is obviously becoming a big yeah. problem? Yeah, yeah. So um, the one that we just um, covered was pre-ordering. It gives you a sense of demand before going forward and making something. Um, a lot of factories will require minimums for the number of units per style in order for them to want to make a garment for you. Um, I went about it the other way. I found relationships and suppliers who were willing to make our small quantities. Um, it may have come at maybe a higher cost of production because it's smaller, but also working with family-owned, very small um, manufacturing sites was also able to support the, the supply that we wanted to provide. Um, beyond that, I think it's always, we were always in the position of 
we didn't have enough, we're selling out, that's a much stronger message um, than to have, have too much, stock, yeah. not know your demand, and then sit on inventory for mm -hmm. months and months, which may just become dead stock, but or in the journey to being dead stock, it is massively discounted, discounted yeah. which undercuts your whole brand um, as a whole. And you've had all of this wastage, like you said, carbon emissions to make all of this, um, just for it to sit there. And that, that, for me, setting up the brand and the supply chain was not going to be an option. That was not how I wanted um, our sort of our supply chain to work yeah so it's just about having a strategic supply chain and supply chain management I guess. Yeah, yeah yeah exactly so even like look I've looked at your designs obviously and touched them and they're not what you would expect them mm -hmm. to feel yeah like. so, yeah so stretchy and yeah they look you know like yeah film. yeah but, um, you know I, I feel like they're very Scandinavian and, yes um, Minimal. And minimal, quite similar to cars, like right up my street. Yeah. So I think like you are the one of the first labels to tap into the trend of wanting to really focus on corporate, um, corporate women working yeah. in like professional industry. Yeah. Um, and I remember when I used to work in a corporate company, I always found it quite difficult to find. I mean, there were there were a lot of clothes out there. Yeah. Comfy clothes. Like, yeah. As soon as I got home, I was like, yes. getting out of the skirt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I guess can you shed some light on how you decided what target consumer you wanted to go for and why you wanted to go for high end and not high street? Yeah. Um, I think I went for a consumer that's maybe myself or a similar version of um, myself so <laughs> demographically it's the the older millennial who probably is urban um, has a great sort of busy lifestyle with work goes probably to fitness classes loves travel loves experiences trying new restaurants um, probably doesn't own a car and ubers to places that's sort of like the demographic that that's I like thought yeah and and I started with um, I guess the price point wise going around to shops and seeing what's available in high street or high end of high street um, there were not comfortable clothes like you were describing I think the designers who are making those clothes never sat a day I think the designers who are making those clothes in the high end of high street, they've never sat in the day of, in the life of someone who is a corporate woman mm, who had a, a day of meetings, who, you know, got on the tube, was rushing from meeting to the office to the lunch with a client or dinner, drinks yeah, after work with so colleagues. They yeah, they've not thought about it. They decide to cut out the pockets and, you know, add a lining that's very uncomfortable and scratchy on your skin and they don't know. Um, so, but I always wanted that polished, beautiful look and two of the brands that I... <laughs> oh my god, I told you this is a crazy street. Right in the middle um, of central London. Yeah. What you expect, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I've always loved um, that really polished look and two of the brands that I would have died to own dresses of were Roland Murray and Victoria Beckham. You know how they look very, not less body conversions of those yeah. because you probably don't want that much attention to your behind. But they looked really clean, <laughs> tailored, cheap, yeah. yeah, beautiful. Um, and they just really look put together, but at 1,500 pounds price tag, mm. that's something you would wear maybe to an event, to a wedding, and not you know every other week that you needed. Yeah, yeah. for the office. And so I wanted to bring sort of bridge that gap mm. as well. When I interned with um, Amelia Wickstead, I saw the pricing architecture of the luxury women's wear category, the raw materials, the production costs. But if, we, if I sold it to the end customer, or they sold it to a wholesale account, like Selfridges, Net-A-Porte, et cetera, um, because then they go on and mark it up another 2.75 times before mm -hmm. you are buying that product in their store, there's a direct-to-consumer 
market to have the same quality but at a much more affordable price point. Um, and that's sort of the pricing I wanted to go for and bring the high end, mm -hmm. but at the pricing that you would find in um, maybe a high street brand. Yeah, that makes sense. Through that middleman, yeah, exactly. Cut the middleman in the traditional retail market. Mm -hmm. Um, so you've designed all the pieces yourself, yeah. correct? Um, wh where do you get inspiration for your designs? Um, so I know you said obviously you work in finance and, and you used to draw a lot, but yeah. where do you get your creative kind of yeah. inspiration from? I, yeah, yeah it looks, thank you. Um, I, I think I'm quite minimal as a person or aesthetic eye. And when I put together my first mood boards, um, I was fascinated by references of just minimal, maybe a line or a corner of a building with the sky behind it. And there would be angles from just the geometry of architecture, yeah, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah, like, like I always see, you know, photography's portfolio. Yeah. Simple, simple yeah. yeah. So I took a lot of inspiration from just clean lines, mm -hmm. geometry. Um, and angles and juxtaposed a lot of it together to create flattering style lines um, on the designs and the sketches. Mm -hmm. So on some of the designs you'll find um, sort of in a geometric way hourglass that still makes a flattering shape on the body. Um, there's this constant angled pockets that comes at a, a flattering angle for yeah. your hips. Um, I love inverted pleats for some reason, so you see that as a recurring theme in some of the skirts, dresses, and tops. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Back again. And, and finally, just thinking about function, so pockets were always a big Thing for me, I love finding I pockets. pockets. Yeah, exactly. Pocket it's just so chic. And there's no pockets. It's yeah. like disappointing. It kind of yeah. like you might not buy them. Yeah. 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 So pockets were huge for me. I put pockets in my wedding dress. Like it oh, was wow. definitely crazy. something that yeah. I loved. So um, a lot of the designs have pockets where it made sense to put pockets. I will. A lot of designs have plays on functionality and adaptability so our shirt our um, blouse and blazer have this foldable cuff function mm -hmm. so you can either have a full-length cuff or if you fold it up it looks quite chic and you show either your watch or your bracelet and it's like a different look um, so little things like that I really try to play up mm -hmm. and it's good because then you kind of have like this investment piece which mm -hmm. is you know, not even too expensive, but you can wear it different ways. And yeah. That's the thing when you're in the office and you're yeah. wearing, you don't want to be an outfit repeater. Yeah. I'm so self-conscious of yeah. wearing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, you want pieces which are kind of yeah. change, interchangeable. And exactly. You and, and also thinking about day to night and how yeah, the outfits go exactly. together. If you've got a day where you know you have fun drinks with a fun cool client after then you might want to put something more fun on but cover mm -hmm. it up in the office if you need to go to a serious meeting with a blazer and yeah. then just like throw it off and have a drink after yeah so many things to think about yeah that. yeah <laughs> so the i guess the online fashion space is becoming really competitive now mm -hmm. with um, also with influencers and them actually starting up their own brands. Yeah. So how, like, where do you think you sit against your competitors and how do you think you'll bring something different to the table? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Um, I, think, I think we have a very unique um, differentiator, which is our fabrics. Uh, and that's something that's not widely accessible on the market or very rarely accessible on the market is performance innovative textiles that are made into this beautiful British tailoring and craftsmanship. So from that point of view, we're offering something that in the market it's probably not very easy to find. Um, E-commerce and being digitally native as a brand I think plays to our favor at this stage you see and read about the industry right now being a bit of a struggle with brick and mortar stores. They are expensive as, you know, as overheads for companies and signing into very long leases. We have the 
flexibility of testing pop-up concepts, testing with different audiences and trunk shows and cities, um, and then from all that data, being able to make an informed decision about if we do commit to a future brick and mortar position, where that will be, what's mm -hmm. the most optimal, and even the experience of it, like what we're offering here with our showroom now, um, is it's a comprehensive solution. There are shoes that go with the outfit mm -hmm. for you to try on. Um, we brought in a functional bag brand, just oh, to wow. think about the whole complete picture, but our customer has the opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one personalized styling session okay. for an hour with myself. Yeah, um, it's about the experience, isn't it? It's about the experience. You know, nowadays, <clears throat> consumers don't want to just look at that one piece. No. Of, you know, that one dress hanging up there. They want yeah. to be, you know, as exactly. long as they go to the hairdressers and having the full experience. Exactly, and they don't want that going into the store and shift, shifting through the rack of like from so si every single size, yeah. trying to find your size or going to the sale rack. Our showroom is very well curated. Yeah. Um, if there's something that you like, we'll bring down the size for you and the color of your choice to try on. Um, there, we offer you still sparkling water, rosé or prosecco mm -hmm. if you'd like. Amazing. Um, and at the end of the session, um, your bag is ready and packed for you. We don't have to go to a checkout counter. Mm -hmm. um, or if you're going off to a party or dinner and don't want to carry the bag, we'll ship it to you. Mm -hmm. So those are all little... Just making your life easier. Exactly. And that makes, I think sometimes, <clears throat> I don't shop in sales anymore unless it's online. Yeah. It's so stressful. It's so stressful. And it's um, like so tiring. Yeah, it really is. But like you're there yeah, with all your bags. Yeah, like I can't. Like rummage through this. Like, yeah. Stampede of girls. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, um, I didn't talk about the influencer bit, but um, oh, yeah, 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 I can. Um, so, with regards to influencers, I think we've had so far more of an ad hoc strategy of working with influencers. Um, the ones that are, I guess, the ones that are starting up their own brands, um, they are mega influencers for the most part, to be confident enough to do that. And they don't trend, tend to, they don't tend to trend in my space, which is the more business wear, tailoring, um, workwear space. Mm -hmm. So that is good. Um, but with the influencers we do work with, I look across sort of an authentic uh, sharing of the vision with what we view as our brand is really mm -hmm. important. So not just there are lots of influencers who just want these. Um, that's not how we work. We want someone to really love and embrace the brand. And if at the end of it, you know, they really, really love that one blouse, let's say, um, I'm happy to gift it to them because I know they're going to get good wear and a lifetime mm -hmm. value out of it. Um, yeah, so. Okay. Yeah. And so that rolls into my next question. <clears throat> yeah. Like on social media. Yeah. Have you used many influencers or mm -hmm. fashion bloggers? And do you think social media is kind of way forward? And does it play like a big part in your marketing? <clears throat> yeah, um, it's an it's a really interesting one for us, and I think we're constantly re reviewing and, and and evolving our strategy with that. Um, we work with influencers so far on an ad hoc basis and just mm -hmm. really organically having engagement with one that we really like them and they like or love what we're doing, then it becomes a natural dialogue. Um, for example, I recently worked with um, Michelle Tyler and she is an ethical, sustainable fashion influencer. She's over 40s and has children mm -hmm. and um, carries this sort of like lifestyle that is really aligned to what we're trying to build yeah, with our yeah. sustainable commitment. Um, and when I went out to New York recently, I invited her to come to see the collection. That was the first time we met each other. We had a great discussion, had a lot of commonalities, and um, in the end, it became a really organic way to work together. And you can sense that. Yeah, definitely. So I think those are the types of influencer collaborations that I would pursue for the foreseeable future, the mm -hmm. ones that are um, more from an organic place. Uh, I do think a lot of big brands probably are just out there scouting for influencers and um, pay them fees for the reach that they have, which is one, we don't have the budget to do that. But two, I think it's also, you can sense you if can it's, not, it. it's not authentic. Yeah, it's not authentic. Yeah. Um, the other thing about influencers is 
while they could have a great following um, with lots of likes and engagement, mm -hmm. now it's really it's really like a litmus a litmus test to see how much of that is actually authentic because I I've found that there are lots of bots out there just liking and commenting automatically yeah. or um, and then you can buy followers now and this whole it's sort like of thing is exactly so we were really careful with who mm -hmm. um, who we end up collaborating with and also it's just like do you, how do you track the conversion yeah. rate of you know say you did invest in a, an influencer how do you know how how many more sales you're bringing exactly in and what the increase is based yeah. on yeah one post there are, um, if they do a blog, there are ways um, through affiliate programs mm -hmm. at least to, to link, track that, yeah. to track that link. But if say, so-and-so who's following this influencer sees a blog, clicks through, but then goes away, mm -hmm. decides the next day, oh, I did like that brand, Googles them, and then there's, there's tracking. no tracking. Yeah. So that makes it quite hard, but at least in the very basic scenario, you can see you know, are there followers who are interested in you following mm -hmm. you? Yeah. Is your follower number going up? Are you getting more engagement? I mean, yeah, you can read through the comments and also see how much of it is authentic and yeah. and how much of it and is real. bots. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So it's tricky to navigate now. Yeah, okay. it's just so much out there mm -hmm. you know, on Instagram. It's mm -hmm. becoming just um, a very very crowded, saturated yeah, space. Yeah, yeah, it is. Almost to the point where now I'm like, even when I'm scrolling through the spam, I feel like I need like a filter, detox time. Yeah, exactly. Almost, like all the adverts actually yeah. coming up. It's yeah, not, it's not. It's not great. No, yeah. I take weekends to like totally shut off. Oh, that's amazing. I need yeah. to be more. Yeah. <laughs> so just moving on to, um, I guess, the financial side of it. Mm -hmm. How did you initially fund fund the business? Uh, I initially funded the business through my personal savings. Um, I started by putting in 30,000 pounds into um, the coursework at London College of Fashion, then the initial sampling and prototyping the first trips to Premier Vision in Paris, which is the world's largest textile um, exhibition. Mm -hmm. Then from there, developing our first samples, investing in um, I created size sets, so every single size from UK 6 to 14 in our trousers, our blazer, and a dress. It's really expensive to do when yeah, you're just paying for sampling because you're paying one by one for an hourly no rate. It makes, scale, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, but I thought that was really important for people to put on the blazer, know confidently this is the right size that they're. Yeah. You can cut off at this is the yeah. right size. Um, then, so the sampling, it went into the website development. Wherever I could, I asked um, friends in my network if they knew anyone that had the skill set of a part of the puzzle um, of putting the whole brand together. Mm -hmm. So the branding and the copy in the very beginning, it was thankfully, and I'm great, gratefully through um, a connection that was a, brand, a branding person. Um, the website, which can be very expensive, um, as you may know, or if you did it yourself. It's, I actually did my work myself. That's great. It took a lot of It did, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it can easily, if you had the concept and the branding and went to a designer mm. to do it, it in-house, it's very yeah. expensive. And also you'd end up finding a freelance as well. Because yeah. You need them yeah. Time, so you're paying like a 50% premium. Yeah, that. completely. So the website was a chunk of that oh and the first photo shoots yeah that also it can be yeah from models, yeah, models, yeah yeah all of that and then the retouching it it is also a cost so to do it when I say I guess doing it on a bootstrap anyone if they want to talk to me about how how much each individual co itemized cost was mm. on the low end and on the high end you can get it done but if you want it to look really stunning and professional um, while still bootstrapping, I mean, it's it's kind of a it's kind of yeah, yeah, it's kind of a balance. Um, but in the end, I think it worked because the first set of photo um, the first set of press that really loved our imagery and the website mm. enough to ask for samples. Um, okay. One of the first journalists was the Times, 
So well, I mean, yeah. Great, your so yeah, your first year of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was good. And even looking at your lookbook, would you, do you call it? Yeah, yes. lookbook. It's just it's weird because I think with the photography, it's so it needs to be on point now. Yeah. With so many amazing kind of imagery out there yeah. on Instagram, <coughs> sometimes you'll see clothes and I think you know it looks great, but because the photos aren't taken very well, yeah, it doesn't really sell. Yeah, do the yeah any justice, yeah as a digital brand mm. the imagery is your they're it your assets isn't it? Yeah. yeah exactly so um and there are so many really young talented photographers and mm. makeup Everyone's artists like yeah days, yeah <laughs> they're out there and there's like, yeah. you don't have to go to the one who's been in vogue and did mm. this celebrity and that those they're out there too and they're expensive mm. and so are venues for your first studio shoot and all of that so yeah there's a lot there's the whole menu yeah Imagine. Yeah. So just moving on to the topic of teaming. Yeah. So so far you said you've relied on freelancers. Yeah. So, so like pattern cutters and even the web developer. Yeah. Um, brand consultant and PR consultant. Yeah, PR and like recently a part-time intern. Yeah. Are you planning on hiring permanent staff at all in the future? Yeah. Um, that's definitely the plan. Um, it's grown to the point where. Um, I myself cannot have this much of my day and be focused on more operational things or um, admin, side, admin yeah. side and decisions that don't need to be bottlenecked at myself. Mm -hmm. So that is a plan and one of the challenges with bootstrapping is um, not having that budget to hire that talent that you might want that's appropriate for the company um, and this, the experience that they bring with them. So something we're working through but I'm definitely looking to hire permanently. Mm. And what would you look for in your first kind of permanent hire? Um, so what would I look for in our first permanent hire? Um, I think it's buying into the brand and the mission. Um, it's interesting because you read a lot about company cultures and corporate cultures and I think that first employee makes the culture kind of real really because yeah. it's, if it's just it's me, like, yeah. there's no cult, like the culture is just me. It's just your personality. Yeah. <laughs> just <you>. And <laughs> so bringing on someone permanently is creating that culture that makes them and love. How your relationship and the dynamics of your relationship is with that one person. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think I'm looking for someone who's driven, um, has strong attention to detail. Um, and I was reading, you know, someone I read, I came across something really interesting, but looking to hire someone that's bright versus someone that's smart, because someone that's bright would mean they're enthusiastic, maybe taking more risks, maybe um, just a bit more street, street, street smart, smart and savvy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's what you kind of need um, earlier Especially on is someone who's. Up. Yeah, who's a bit more autonomous and can think outside of the box and find creative ways to um, make something happen. Because when you're on a budget, that means you kind of have to be creative about yeah, what you do um, on a, a with less. Yeah, no, no, I like that. Um, what do you think you still need to learn in order to take die where you want it to be? Oh, I need to learn so much. Um, it's kind of like a video game where <laughs> it's like Mario. The yeah, the first the Got first level is really easy, and then yeah. no, I mean the first level is not easy, but when you get to the next level, it has all its own challenges. And so I think now um, to the point where I am thinking about um, external funding and all the various options that there are, and really getting smart and savvy about you know the the way venture capitalists might think, the, the VC terms and understanding the dynamics and incentives of that world. Mm -hmm. um, not to say that I'm directly applying or trying to go for VC funding at this stage, but something it's just been, about, it's something it? to yeah. think about. Um, and maybe that comes with my banking background is mm -hmm. I'm always um, trying to be thinking ahead financially. Yeah. Um, but so with that brings its own sort of lots of learning curves again. I think so far this past year since we've launched it's been a full-time a one-man show which is me making the shots and um and i think going forward you know to go from now to a team of say three or five i cannot i don't think i've been in that situation of having you know 
someone who is the marketing director or someone who's a production manager and someone who's the e-commerce manager permanently having a team of those people around that's a new learning curve for me because yeah. I won't I don't know how to delegate I mean yeah you know and it's always like because it is your baby you're so used to making those key decisions yeah that you need to kind of really just let go and let them do their thing yeah let their experts do it and have yeah. that trust and not you know in a sense feel like manager. I had yeah. an interesting conversation with them um, so Chris Frank he's uh, the uh, managing director of Iris Worldwide, mm. Iris Amsterdam, sorry. Mm-hmm. So he runs the marketing agency out there, and he was yeah. saying how, as the MD, he's essentially like managing the show, but he's not a creative, he's not a planner, mm-hmm. he's not, um, yeah, all these things. He has, yeah. he, he hires people who are great at what they do, and yeah. he just lets them get on with it. Yeah. You know, so yeah. It's also like like that being able to but handing that yeah, over when it's like your own baby yeah. that you built with your own. I feel like I built yeah. it literally with my hands. Yeah, well. yeah. So that's a that's the next learning curve probably mm-hmm. for me. If touch wood, this is the direction it's going in. I think mm-hmm. that's that's going to be the next adjustment for me. And then if it continues to grow, then the next set of hires in the team, I guess, grows and we have a fulfillment warehouse instead of me and my intern packing and mm. it's all exciting, but it's yeah. all, yeah, growth process, growing pains. Changing parts. Yeah. Um, so just moving on to some more philosophical questions. Yeah, love I these. Think, um, <laughs> it obviously takes a certain level of focus, resilience and character in each person to start their own business and really take that leap and that like leap of faith and that risk yeah Um, so what do you think taught you this to be this way growing up and what kind of childhood influences do you think have contributed to this good question um i don't think anyone's actually asked me that so far the questions about my journey have been much more of the just the last two years Mm. or last maybe if you incorporate the finance career the last eight years plus two years ten years um, I yeah I was always um, well I was always an athlete part of a yeah. swimming team and the water polo team and as water polo captain in high school but I think what might be interesting with the entrepreneurial bug that I got is since like fifth grade I ran for student government in oh, wow. yeah wow. in elementary school I ran for vice president of publicity and then junior high I ran for vice president and mm-hmm. high school I was the secretary and then I was always then I was yeah and and um, at uni I was the class president um, for the class of 2008 at Cornell so I think I and then with that role um, which I had take that part out so with that role I was able to you know have a budget from the school and be able to plan events for my peers think about, you know, is it like a t-shirt that we're going to give away to get people to come to this event and building class spirit and, you know, school spirit. And those were the types of um, little projects that I felt were really, they excited me. Like Mm -hmm. these types of things really excited me. And I think once I went into the funnel of work, I didn't get to do a lot of that. Yeah, the extracurricular side, Mm -hmm. which I always enjoyed. So I think that will be my i think that's my link to being entrepreneurial i always enjoyed um having that sort of like leadership like entrepreneurial spirit, spirit. Project, yeah exactly yeah, yeah and how, do your parents had they run their own businesses are they entrepreneurs or um so my dad ended up being an entrepreneur um he was always a mechanical engineer and working for large companies and being very technical um and uh eventually um, after we moved to the States, um, he started his own company with a partner and they do um, mechanical sort of import, export with U.S. and international customers with parts made in China that are applicable for um, their application. Yeah. So I, I got to see him do that. and I. I think it's a very different journey because I don't think it's influenced me so much as like he's taken a, uh, a slower journey, I would say. It's not like now I think I've been brought up in this millennial thinking and seeing all these direct-to-consumer brands and with social media and the digital age, um, I have a very different sort of vision for the mm-hmm. path of my company, but it was great to see him and that allowed him to have more of the financial freedom, but also came with the financial stress 
of mm. you know letting your whole family down. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was a good inspiration. Yeah. Okay. So growing up or, or maybe within your experience in banking or, or maybe even with starting up die, do you has there been like a like a memorable failure or like a favourite failure of yours which you feel like you've learned the most from? Yes. Um, this is also another great question. I love these. Um, can't wait to hear what everyone else said. Yeah. Um, okay, so my most memorable failure was I was class president of Cornell, um, class of 2008. Yeah. For um, there was no class president freshman year, so I won at the end of freshman year for sophomore year, and I won the election for junior year. So I reran to be president for senior year because since freshman year, the prize at the end was to be able to make the uh, make the commencement speech in front of your class with all the parents. And I thought, oh, this is like my glorious right, like yeah. it would be really cool to say something inspiring to my classmates. Um, so junior year for the election into senior year my <clears throat> vice president ran against me and he was oh i don't know if i can say like what i want to say on like on record yeah. no he was i mean to even do that is quite a petty move and i had you know i thought i was i mean i guess i was like chest puffing and thought i was hot shit because i was like i have friends who have cars i got this brilliant idea and i'm gonna like put my campaign with like car window paint on their car so my campaign will be like mobile around the campus and yeah. i'm definitely gonna win and so i wrote and my campaign was die or die, die <laughs> which die is like so good i think someone my friend came up with it so i wrote die or die on all my friends car windows and we lived in the closest spot to campus where there was like an amazing bagel and cafe shop downstairs and my friends would just park outside there. It's a metered parking spot, but we lived above there. So, you know, I didn't think twice about how they parked. I just had my campaign on their windows. The opponent who ran against me, he then took the entire campaign rule book and found 11 different reasons to disqualify me including wow. going over budget because I paid for rental cars, because I paid for parking, because the rental cars were illegally parked, and all of this like nonsense, yeah. where it was almost like a tribunal that I, for you some reason, I had to, yeah. He had, yeah, and I had to go in front and defend myself, but when you get into a situation like that and get into like the nuances of, was the card there, and you're like, Yes, like, you so know, petty, and then yeah. it's so petty, but then I think the the judging panel or whatever, it's just like, I had to admit to these things that, I don't know, it's just like, and then after 11 of these mm. petty little things, they did decide that I did in fact park the car there and, you know, whatever rule that they decided triggered my disqualification, but I won by vote and I got disqualified and I was oh, crushed yeah. um, for a long time. Well, maybe for like a month and then I got over it because yeah. it's a good lesson um, that my mom told me just to think about, you know, there will be failures, even bigger ones later on in your life. And this is the smallest, like probably the most inconsequential thing that can happen to you at this age. Mm. So and how old were you I was 21. Okay. So, you know, so young, yeah. yeah, I mean, not, I was, yeah, I thought this was like my life, like my life's, my four year dream was yeah. to give this speech. Um, I've never actually told anyone this in public. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was, you know, it is inconsequential. I look back now and I can have a laugh about it. Mm -hmm. And um, I think later on, maybe, you know, maybe in finance or whatever little hiccups that came my way, you know, you can't take them that seriously mm -hmm. because it's like or life moves on. Yeah, exactly. I think in life there's always going to be, like the storming's always going to come. Yeah, exactly. Do you think it's going to be smooth sailing? No, it's and never smooth. Yeah. So it's just about being prepared for that and yeah. being able to take your biggest learnings from those failures. Yeah, exactly. Um, so on a lighter note, what brings you real joy at the minute? So like real unadulterated happiness? <laughs> Does it have to be work-related? No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> Um, what brings me real joy at the moment? It's now 
you know, I'm 32, and when I can find the moments or the trips or the times to catch up with really good old friends or my family, I think you really treasure those moments more than anything else, more than before. Then I think now I don't take those times for granted because you don't know when you're next going to be in the same city or having this amazing conversation at dinner and having a drink yeah. with these people and being all together. Um, so those are those mm. make me happy. Yeah, just about living in the present, right? Yeah. Um, so what kind of apps or tools do you use at the moment which help you organize your life or just make your life easier? Yeah, um, Trello. Are you the Trello? Yeah, yeah. Number one, it's like on my, it's on my iPhone. Yeah, it's so good. And I have one with like my freelancers, and it's just so many boards. Yeah, so yeah, no, it's so good. I know. Yeah, I know. It's so good. It's so good. And what's helped a lot with work with the customer service is Zendesk. I know it's, um, I don't know if that's applicable for a lot of people and what they're doing, but when we had the Times article and we had 200 pairs of trousers to produce to, to fulfill pre-orders, um, the, the amount of customers who were coming in and you know needed something, a Gmail inbox could not manage it because I would quickly, like within five seconds, forget if it was Fiona or Ashley or Catherine or you know whoever yeah. it was that just needed something specific. Um, the way Zendesk is organized is brilliant. So and they have very, very affordable small packages for a one-person customer service team, which at the present is myself. Yeah. If you see someone sign off on our customer service, it's probably me. But then I escalate to myself when um, something problematic comes yeah. up. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. So, um, a couple of questions. Yeah. What does your morning routine look like? Do you oh, have one? <laughs> uh, I'm not a morning person. Don't worry, I'm not either. Mornings are <laughs> terrible for me. Um, I will set my alarm to seven o'clock. Um, by the way, my old morning routine was horrendous. I would be at my desk between seven and seven thirty, depending on if this I had is a when deal. You were working in, um, in the bank. Yeah. Um, and sometimes because I had to send out these daily market update emails in the morning to several thousand people at the company, um, relying on our my market our market mm -hmm. view from my desk, I would write that on the tube. But I'm I'm very slow to wake up in the morning. So anyway, I'd write my market update on the tube, get to my desk, finish that email, send it out, like seven, seven thirty, get on the first calls. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes at 7 or 7.15 if I have a deal going that day. Otherwise, the first morning meeting where I'm talking is at 7.45, and then I go and get breakfast, and then I'm not, sometimes not awake until like after lunch. Wow. But I don't know how I manage to punch yeah. all, like pack all that in. Um, now I set the alarm for 7, because that's when my husband gets up, and then I'll snooze usually um, quite a bit, depending on the time of year. Um, but then I'll get up, get to work, have breakfast, sort of wake up, and then I go for, I'll try to plan a midday run, mm. and that's where I get a lot of thinking or stress relief yeah. or just zoning out, and then I'm really productive from the afternoon um, to the evening, and do I sometimes do a lot of emails at night. Mm. Mm. I always think it's interesting to see what, what other yeah, when you, when you set yourself up for the day I know I never used to be I'm not saying I'm a morning person now because but I'm a lot better I used yeah. to just roll out of bed and just kind of like get straight out of the house but oh good uh, but no but that's not a good thing because I'm just <coughs> reminded so much yeah by the time we get to work so I'm foggy so, yeah like half asleep still and yeah really awake, whereas now I really try to make sure I have at least what well, I walk to work now so it usually that's takes good. me like 45 minutes to an hour, it's a long walk, but that's kind that's of my, my exercise. And yeah. I listen to a podcast or like yeah. I listen to music and that's Great. like my way of de-stressing that's just slowly waking up. So by the, time, by the time I get to my desk, I'm really kind of like energized and awake. Yeah. But even before doing, you know, that walk, I'll wake up early and I'll like journal or listen to music and yeah. try and um, like, I don't know, have a shower and just take your time. I think yeah. it really does set you up for the day. Yeah, definitely. So you're not in a bad mood and waking up on the wrong side yeah, of the bed. Yeah, no, definitely. Like a green juice or something. Yeah. Like just, I don't know. I think um, we were talking about me. Tim Ferriss, and I think there was a recent podcast. I need to look it up. 
Um, but it's uh, an author who wrote about thinking, who wrote about productivity and how your day and your brain works and how you apply when your brain is at the most optimal level mm. to do these types of activities, like the creative stuff. Mm. And when it's not at the most optimal, but the middle one, you're doing your um, sort of admin tasks that require less of the creative thought. Mm. And we need to find the name of this book and put it on the link to your podcast. Yeah, no, I'll definitely add it to the show notes. Yeah, yeah. But I even find even doing admin tasks, I need to be really yeah, I like, know. alert. But then yeah. when I'm being creative, I need to be like, yeah. it's funny because sometimes I'll get into the office and I'll prioritize what needs to be done first and what basically <laughs> I will do. It's something like, there's a weird theory called eating the frog. Oh, have you heard of that? No. I think it's called, it, maybe I'm, don't quote me on that, but it basically says that you need to do the hardest tasks first. Okay, yeah. Because that's when you're most alert and most focused. Yeah. You do the hardest thing first and then gradually um, it's like... Yeah, I don't do that. I procrastinate the hardest <laughs> task. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, yeah. you've got to do more work for yeah. the day, but it's just about trying and getting into your mojo, I think. Yeah. But even though I'm not a morning person, I do think I am more productive in the morning. So yeah. Like, oh, that's good. Um, but then my creativity comes out at night a lot. Yeah. Time, just in it's weird hard to, yeah, in weird moments. You gotta, you gotta seize those weird moments. Yeah. <laughs> so two more questions. Yeah. What is, if you had to gift one book to someone, what would it be? Ooh, okay. For all the aspiring entrepreneurs listening to your podcast, I read The Lean Startup okay. in the very beginning. It's not the most, entertaining book it's rather dry but it taught me about it taught me about building the minimum viable product and iterating based on feedback so putting that mark that product out to the market or early adopters getting feedback and iterating that feedback into the loop so you're constantly improving that MVP mm -hmm. rather than waiting until you think you've got the exact perfect to your vision yeah. product which might take forever and cost a lot more in the runway of leading up to that mm -hmm. um, to only find out that it wasn't as grand or there's something fundamentally really flawed with it. Yeah. So I think I took that concept and applied it when I had eight pieces only and only had samples because I wanted to put that out there with the trunk shows and the pre-order and get, feedback, and get yeah. feedback. And if it wasn't good enough, then it wasn't going into production. Exactly. You're not committing to it. Yeah. And yeah. with everything else, like the website, I didn't go all out on the fanciest website and the fanciest designer. Mm -hmm. Just get one up and running that looks good enough mm -hmm. um, and you know, improve from there. So I think that was really valuable for me as someone who's self-funded and bootstrapping the yeah. lean startup. I think that um, that kind of uh, mentality is really important in any kind of business or, or doing anything. It's <coughs> just like, just start, right? Yeah, just yeah, start. I think a lot of the time people think, right, I need to be perfect, I need to do Yeah. This. Even just like with running, like when I first started to run, I was like, I can't do 5K. <laughs> but, you know, if, you ha if you're not a runner, you're not going to be able to do 5K. No. But it's, it's all gradual and it's realizing that it's just these daily routines. Yeah. And, like the disciplines that you apply to your life. Yeah. You all build up and you'll make the big change eventually. But it's just about... Um, yeah, just doing it. Yeah. Moving, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, final question. If you could have a big billboard with anything on it, uh, metaphorically speaking, what would it say and why? Oh, this is the hard one. Yeah. This one I didn't prepare for. Um, off record, have other people given quotes here, or is it yeah, totally can, creative? Yeah, you can, it can be a few words or a paragraph or someone else's quote. Yeah. I'm actually trying to, so I have this idea right now that I want to make a logo t-shirt related to female empowerment oh, and have that as a bit of a campaign, but also something um, that hopefully goes a little bit viral and gets sort of the brand and the cult of people who love the brand going. Mm -hmm. um, it'll either go something very less expensive on the website made of an eco-sustainable organic cotton mm -hmm. um, or um, or be sent you know above a certain basket value like people can be part of the tribe um, so it kind of reminds me of that and what I would put on the t-shirt mm -hmm. um, I have this campaign 
hashtag dynamic woman, and I think the word dynamic with D-A-I, oh, dynamic, <laughs> is um, it describes the clothes, but it describes the woman, and I think mm. it so well defines and captures the brand. Mm. Um, so if I had to pick and didn't come up with any new ideas, I'd probably put dynamic woman mm. on the billboard um, because it's just a reminder of all the women out there who are dynamic, balancing everything in their life and needing the clothes that get them there and help them perform and do so. Um, but also just infusing that bit of branding in there. Yeah, that's really smart. I really like that. Yeah, actually. yeah. And it's almost like it's just within that one word, it pretty much sums up the, yeah. yeah, what your brand is all about. Yeah. Like, no, really yeah. Cool. If not that, then something about sustainability and how yeah. we are trying to save the planet. Mm -hmm. Someone has to do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I'm just going to wrap up now, but thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure, thank you. It's really, really great to have you on the show, and I know your story already inspires others. Um, and if you want to check out the designs, then I will put the website and the ins your Instagram handle in all the show notes, but it's, it's at dieware, right? Yes, yeah, D-A-I-W-E-A-R.com. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, make sure you go and check out all the, all the designs because they are very beautiful. Thank you, right. Carmen. Well, do you want to say anything else? No, that's it. I mean, this is a great conversation <laughs> and I hope it yeah, was valuable. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Well, thank you very much.